Hello everybody, what is up? This is the New England Gothic and I am your host, Kate Ford. Today we are talking about the absolutely scandalous murders of the Harvard Medical School. Our story starts today in the 1840s. And as always, I like to add a little content warning before we dive into these episodes. Today, obviously, we are going to be talking about murder. And most murder is graphic. I will say this murder is a little spicy. It's pretty disturbing. So just a heads up for that. And before we get started, I just want to say thank you so much for joining. This is our second episode. It looks like I'm on a roll with the topic of dark history involved with colleges in New England. It seems like a lot of these famous colleges have a lot of really dark secrets. Harvard has a ton. So I'm going to add a little extra bonus, like few minute episode at the end to cover a really quick dark history harvard situation teaser it has to do with body snatching which is connected to our main story that we're going to be telling today there's a little bit of body snatching as a treat um i'm just kidding that's not body snatching was horrible um i'm not trying to make light of that but you will have a little body snatching as a treat All right, let's get started. So like I said, we are in the 1840s and I'm just going to dive right in. So in 1842, Harvard professor John Webster borrowed $400 from wealthy Bostonian George Parkman. Today, this would be the equivalent of about 10 grand. So that's a lot of money. John Webster was a lecturer at the new, at the time, Harvard Medical College in the Holden Chapel. He was described as pleasant, but rather nervous and excitable. Honestly, same. Many of Webster's classroom demonstrations involved some of the latest chemical discoveries. It was said by peers of Webster that there was no person less likely to commit such a bloody and cruel crime as that for which he was accused. But which we see in a lot of murder cases, money was a problem for Webster. His family had been forced to give up a mansion he had built in Cambridge. Oh, boo you have to give up your mansion. I'm just kidding, but mm, anyway. So he was in debt to quite a few people, actually, and his salary at Harvard couldn't cover his debts. So by 1847, mind you, he borrowed the money originally from George Parkman in 1842. So at this point, it's been over five years, and Webster hasn't paid a cent back to Parkman. So Webster gathered a collateral for this debt. It was a cabinet of rare minerals worth over $66,000 in today's money. Side note, I would love to know where you get a cabinet of rare minerals worth that much. I would love my own cabinet of rare minerals. Anyway, so Webster has his mineral cabinet. Cabinet. I cannot speak properly today. I have a little bit of cold. So he has his fancy rock cabinet and over a year later he takes out an additional loan from another associate named Robert Shaw and he uses the same minerals as collateral. So Parkman learns about this and obviously he becomes upset. So Parkman decides to seek Webster out and just confront him at this point about the debt. 
So the date now is November 22nd, 1849, right before Thanksgiving. Parkman goes to Cambridge to look for Webster, and he runs into Harvard's cashier. Parkman demanded that the cashier pay out any earnings Webster had from his recent lectures. And he does. And later that same day, Webster visits Parkman's home and suggests they meet at the medical college later in the day around 1.30 p.m. This would be the last time George Parkman was not only seen alive, but seen in one piece. Sorry, spoiler alert. So John Webster on the same day, so this is November 22nd, John Webster's home by 6 p.m. and he leaves to go to a party. According to the guests, he's not stressed out, he's acting completely normal. So life goes on. But after about 48 hours, George Parkman's family is, you know, obviously wondering where he is and they notify the police. When initially confronted by the authorities, Webster made sure to mention that he paid off his debt to Parkman and even suggested they get it recorded by the city clerk to clear his name. I'm sorry, that's incredibly suspicious to me. The cops visit him. Hey, Webster, you're the last person to see George Parkman. And he says, not only did I pay off my debt to him, you, you write that down right now. Write that down. Anyway, with such a prominent Bostonian missing, the city erupts into chaos. A $3,000 reward is set for his safe return, which is almost a hundred grand today. A $1,000 reward is for his body. So fueled by media speculation, conspiracies, rumors, Irish immigrants were blamed. People believed that he had been robbed and left for dead because he always carried cash. He spent his days walking around Boston collecting rents and just had a lot of money on him at all times, so it did make sense to assume maybe he had been mugged. But search parties were unable to find his body anywhere. So around this time, Webster starts to behave very oddly, and our next character comes into the story. His name is Ephraim Littlefield, and he is the janitor of Harvard Medical School. And I do want to note a little spoiler. He was a known body snatcher, so keep that in mind. So Webster asks Littlefield if he had seen Parkman on the day of his disappearance. So Littlefield confirms yes, he did see Parkman around 1.30 that afternoon. Webster becomes really aggressive with him, which was unusual, and he says, you need to tell me exactly where you saw Parkman. Littlefield verified that he hadn't seen Parkman enter the building, he just saw him walking on the grounds. And Webster was pleased with this answer, and he made it a point to repeat to Littlefield, who, why would the janitor care about the debt? But he said, you know what? I paid off that debt. Write that down. Just kidding. I don't know if he told him to write it down, but he did make it a point to mention it to Littlefield. So Littlefield and Webster had worked together for many, many years. And Littlefield is thinking to himself, this is literally bizarre. Why is he acting like this? And he starts to really think about all of these recent suspicious interactions that he's been having with Webster. He remembers that a few days before the murder, Webster asked him a few questions about the dissecting vault, including if light could be seen inside it. The day of the actual disappearance, Littlefield recalls Webster locking himself in the office and leaving water running. A few days later, Webster is seen with a bundle, and then he proceeded to ask Littlefield to make a fire so he could presumably burn the contents. I don't know why, but just a Victorian-era man with a bundle being 
sketchy just automatically screams murder to me. Why do you have a bundle? What's in the bundle? After the initial search of the college, the professor had surprised Littlefield with a turkey for Thanksgiving, the first gift he had ever given him in decades of working side by side. I don't know if it's decades. I just said that for dramatic effect, but according to the research, they did work together side by side for many years. Littlefield was very unsettled by all of this, and he was very smart. He was fully aware that he would be considered a suspect eventually, and he just decided to go rogue and do his own investigation to preemptively clear his name. I think that's super smart. He knows his reputation, so, and he's of a lower class. Webster and Parkman are both very high-class men. We know, we know how it goes. We know how the police are, and we know how the wealthy get away with a lot. All right, so... The date now is November 28th. Webster arrives at his classroom when Littlefield is watching him from underneath the floor. So apparently, I'm kind of unsure how this works, but either Littlefield's actual home is in the school, in the building, underneath the classrooms, and he's able to see what's going on through, like, cracks in the floorboard, or his office is under the classroom. But either way, Littlefield is hanging out in the basement, underneath the floorboards, able to see what is going on. So he counts that Webster is moving back and forth, back and forth throughout the room a ton of times, back and forth to the furnace. And he notes that later that day, the furnace was burning so intensely that the heat could be felt through the other side of the wall. So when Webster leaves for the day, Littlefield, just, you know, casual B&E, breaks in through an open window. And he finds that all the doors had been bolted shut, which was Again, unusual. Webster is just acting so unusual in general. What Littlefield claims to have found is pretty suspicious. Empty kindling barrels and wet spots on the floor. I don't know why wet spots on the floor are suspicious, but I don't know. Littlefield said, you know what, this is suspicious. So I'm just going with what he said. By November 30th, Littlefield... Okay, sorry. It's not funny, but I'm just imagining this. He chisels his way into the privy, like the bottom of the privy. So I'm just imagining this man with like a little like chisel and hammer, like dee, 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 just like digging his way into an old fashioned toilet sewer area. So Littlefield was right. He had become a person of interest, and so he's really motivated at this point. He doesn't care that he's going to be wading through actual shit. He is going to clear his name because he knew this was going to happen. So he finally breaks through, and his eyes adjust to the darkness. And trigger warning, this is really graphic. He stumbles upon a very terrible sight. Very terrible. So Littlefield had discovered a human pelvis thigh and lower half of a leg immediately he notifies the police and the remains are removed from this ghastly pit and given to the coroner two officers were ordered to apprehend webster from his home and immediately as predicted webster blamed littlefield for the gruesome deed but guilt did seem to be wreaking havoc on him like we mentioned in the beginning, he was described as like a really nervous, probably sensitive, just kind of a jittery man, which I'm a very nervous, jittery, sensitive person. I definitely relate to this. I cannot lie. And if I'm guilty or feeling guilty, I cannot hide that for one second. So I'm just assuming he's similar. 
So Webster's put in a cell and he's found sweating and shaking. And then he tries to kill himself with poison. Um, he had strychnine on him, but he fails. He, he survives. So while all this is happening, the police are looking for the rest of George Parkman. So remember the strange wet stains on the floor that I said, I don't know why those are suspicious. Well, it turns out they're suspicious. They were acid stains and they were marking all over the floor of Webster's office. So surely his skills as a chemist aided in his attempt to conceal the homicide. Littlefield mentioned a potential bone fragment he believed to have found in Webster's furnace. And when a full search was conducted, a button, some coins, a jawbone, this is important, and teeth important, were revealed. But another super gruesome find was soon to come. If you thought it was gruesome enough, it's about to get worse. Hang on. An armless, headless, and partially burned torso was soon found in a tea chest. It gets worse. The head had been sawn off, a thigh had been stuffed inside the torso, and the heart and other internal organs were just missing. So the poor wife, Mrs. Parkman, has to identify the body based on birthmarks. Further searches of the area find bloody clothing that belonged to him, as well as some vague internal organs. It just says internal organs were found. I don't really know what that means. Just a vague amount of internal organs are located. So the clothing was tested and it showed evidence of copper nitrate, which is used to remove blood. And the remains showed clear signs of being dismembered by someone who had advanced medical knowledge, maybe like a medical school professor. When all this evidence is gathered, the coroner decides that the remains are of a man who was about 5'10". That was Parkman's height. So at this point, things are not looking good for Webster. So we've got the birthmark to identify him by his wife. We've got the coroner determining the height. No head is ever found. Spoiler. But this is when the historic court case kind of happens. Because at this point, there has never been a murder that was solved using um, any sort of anatomical evidence without a head, if that makes sense. So meanwhile, the social circles of both of these men, because obviously, like I'd mentioned before, they are high class men in Boston. Everyone is freaking out and they're horrified. Nobody wants to believe that Webster could have done this. So this was kind of an interesting connection. Fanny Longfellow, the wife of the renowned poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote, Boston is at this moment in sad suspense about the fate of poor Dr. Parkman. You will see by the papers what dark horror overshadows us like an eclipse. Of course we cannot believe Dr. Webster guilty, bad as the evidence look. Many suspect the janitor, who is known to be a bad man, and to have wished for the reward offered for Dr. Parkman's body. He could make things appear against the doctor, having bodies under his control. Remember, Littlefield was a body snatcher. I trust our minds will soon be relieved, but meanwhile, they are soiled by the news details constantly. I went to see poor Mrs. Webster on Saturday, the day after her husband's arrest, but of course was not admitted. What a terrible blight upon her life and of that of the girls. The mere suspicion, for I cannot believe anything can be proved. 
So obviously this community cannot fathom that their peer would have committed such a ghastly murder. Like I said, like murder is obviously graphic and ghastly to begin with, but this is just so graphic. So one of the reasons they believed Littlefield could have gotten away with it is because they assumed he had learned something when he's observing all of these Harvard doctors all, all over the years. And with the body snatching, he probably learned a thing or two about dissecting a corpse. I don't know. I mean, I do see where they are coming from. And obviously, if you are involved in body snatching, it is questionable uh, what your morals are. So it's unclear how much he really knew, but he's obviously intelligent. I mean, nobody can doubt that. So it is also noted that after the trial, he does collect the reward money and it's equivalent to about $98,000 and he's able to retire comfortably and live out the rest of his life. So he does get a happy ending, spoiler alert, but... Yeah, I understand where they're coming from, but it's obviously, it's obviously Webster. Why else would he try to kill himself after he got caught? And um, let me just get to the court case. And if you have any suspicions at all that Littlefield actually was the one to do it, those will be quelled, I can assure you. So this is a very historical, scandalous trial. And let's get into it. On January 26th, Webster is indicted and he hands his attorneys a 194-page defense and just sits quietly. There's no mention of Littlefield framing him, even though that's what he was going to use as a defense. Um, neither attorney addressed anything about the body snatching. Nobody emphasized the fact that he lived near the college, giving him opportunities to plant evidence. In fact, when Littlefield took the stand, everyone said he made a great impression. Hence, you know, he gets his reward money. He's not guilty. He goes on and lives his life happily ever after. So the reason Webster's trial would become so significant is because of the use of forensics. This is the first time in the U.S. that dental evidence and scientific testimony are accepted in a murder trial. So apparently back in the day, if a body was headless... I don't know. I don't know what they did. Apparently, you needed to have a head to convict someone of murder. I don't know. So, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the dean of Harvard Medical College, took the stand and testified that it was his belief the body had to have been dismembered by a doctor or someone with very advanced dissection knowledge. He also claimed that the corpse's build was not dissimilar to that of George Parkman, and he stated he believed it was George Parkman. Then Nathan Cooley Keep, that's kind of got a nice ring to it, Nathan Cooley Keep, Parkman's dentist swore that the jawbone with false teeth found in the furnace belonged to Parkman, recognizing it as his own work that he had just recently done. He actually showed the jury how the jawbone fit exactly into a plaster impression that he had of Parkman's jaw in his office, and he actually burst into tears as he showed the jury how the teeth fit perfectly. Composing himself, he showed through an inscription that the mold had been definitely made specifically for Parkman. Webster himself takes a stand against everybody's advice, and in a 15-minute speech, he criticizes his attorneys and presents his own version of the evidence. But it only takes the jury about three hours to determine that Webster was indeed guilty. The courtroom writer wrote of the verdict, The prisoner who upon the sentence of the jury turned deathly pale. I mean, some of us are just deathly pale anyway, but I digress. I'm just kidding. 
I'm trying to be funny. I don't know if it's working. So even after the verdict, public opinion remained split on who had actually murdered Parkman, Littlefield or Webster. The social circles still are not wanting to accept that one of their own could have done this. And of course, yes, both men did have motives, access, all this. But again, the one of the main reasons why Webster was in fact convicted is because, again, of the advanced dissection skills that were needed to pull this off. So any doubts were quelled, like I said, when Depp's, Webster's death warrant, that's a tongue twister, was officiated. He did write a confession. He stated he had killed Parkman in self-defense. Okay, it's like, why didn't you say that during the trial? But anyway, he claims that Parkman got violent with him during their conversation about the debt. And he said that in self-defense, he, quote, seized whatever thing was handiest. It was a stick of wood and dealt him an instantaneous blow with all of the force that passion could give it. It was on the side of his head and there was nothing to break the force of the blow. He fell instantly upon the pavement. There was no second blow. He did not move, unquote. So that is directly from Webster's confession. On August 30th, 1850, at this point, Webster is publicly hanged. He died within four minutes and was buried in the Copse Hill burying ground. After the hanging, Parkman's widow was the first contributor to a fund created for Webster's now impoverished widow and daughters, which I do feel really horribly for the families in this situation, especially back then when, you know, the husband was the provider. What are they going to do now? That's horrible. And I think it's very nice that even though the widow, you know, they, the wives still stayed friends and Parkman's wife tried to take care of the family in any way she could even though their dad slash husband had murdered her husband. It just shows what kind of character she had. I just thought that was very nice. So this seems like a done deal, but there's actually a little bit of a conspiracy theory about his death. So someone claimed that they saw Webster overseas somewhere in Portugal. And other people say that Webster's body was possibly hanged in a harness and then moved from the gallows to be taken to a neighbor's house. There was also concern that his body would be stolen, so security precautions were apparently taken, and they also had a conspiracy that his body was actually placed in his father's tomb instead of his own, because they were worried about vandalism. So there you have it. I mean, that's the whole story. We've got this super gruesome murder. It's scandalous. It's a whole thing, but it's historically significant due to the use of forensics in the trial. And I always thought that story was really interesting. And so now I want to move on to the little bonus section of this episode. It has to do with Harvard as well and the body snatching. So I just wanted to tell a story that happened in the 90s. So on a hot, I don't know why this just makes it worse, but like a hot August day. And if you're from New England, you know, like gross, humid, it's awful. There's construction workers working on the grounds of the Harvard Medical School and they knock a wall down and centuries old human remains just start to fall out. So there's like human sludge. It was described as sludge. So imagine it's like so humid, you're working and now you're in old human sludge. It's not funny. It's like genuinely so gruesome to think about. So immediately um, it becomes an archaeological site because it was very clear that this wasn't a serial killer or anything like that. It was clearly um, lab waste, which is absolutely horrible 
because these were human beings. So what the workers unintentionally discovered were human remains that were disposed of by the body snatchers during the very beginnings of Harvard Medical School and the whole body snatching scandal. So the Harvard Medical School's body snatching club is called the Spunker Club. And it was led by very interesting people. Um, the sons of Paul Revere and Sam Adams were in this club. And also the future governor of Massachusetts was in this club. And they were led by John Warren, whose father, I believe, was a dean of Harvard Medical School. So all these very prestigious young men are literally breaking into cemeteries and stealing corpses. They described how great they were at doing it. They wrote letters about how when they were discovered that the professors didn't complain because they really needed bodies. At this point, it was illegal for them to use more than four bodies in a year for medical studies, and they were only allowed to get them from the gallows. So, you know, some people try to justify this by saying, well, how are they supposed to learn? I understand that, but you can't just steal bodies from, again, our first episode, we're talking about consent. There's still consent involved, even if they're dead, there's respect and consent and who do you think bodies they stole? They were obviously not stealing other wealthy white men's bodies. So that's obviously a huge problem. And then the fact that they just disposed of them by throwing them down the trash. So this is what was discovered by the construction workers is bodies disposed of in the trash that were, they were done with them in their medical school studies. So that's awful. And I hate that. And it makes me very upset. And I just wanted to share that because it was a part of, you know, the same area, Harvard Medical School. We've got the body snatcher. So Ephraim Littlefield is involved in both of these stories in some way. And Harvard's obviously not the only school with a dark history. I feel like because we are surrounded by a lot of famous, very old institutions, there are going to be a lot of stories involving these schools. So if anybody has a recommendation or any story that's lesser known, definitely hit me up on TikTok. I am creepy Caitlin, or you can email the podcast at the new England Gothic at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much for your support. We're just getting this going. It's kind of a hot mess. I'm kind of a hot mess. If you like what you heard, I don't know, share it, do the things we all know at this point, do the things that need to be done like it, write a nice review. I don't know. Have a good day. Thank you all for joining me. Once again, my name is Kate Ford, and this is the New England Gothic.